Good morning, Ordinary Life. I want to uh, remind you all there's a seminar coming. It's called Savvy Caregiver, and it's for um, caregivers for people with dementia. It's free. It's six sessions of two hours each, and there's some flyers on the back table if you'd like to pick one up. If you're at home and hearing this, you can contact Amazing Place for more information, but it's through St. Paul's and Amazing Place for this seminar. So there's flyers on the very back table. Uh, I want to thank Callista Herbert, Susan Peterson, Bob Webb, Pam Poole for joining me yesterday at a food distribution for Boynton United Methodist Church. We served 65 people and it was really good. It was a great time. We really are building a community and relationship uh, with those with the people that volunteer there and with the clients so it's been really rewarding it's the second Saturday of every month if um, you'd like to make a donation or contribute to ordinary life there are brass collection plates on the back tables we don't pass the plates anymore so anybody have any announcements okay we'll get started then thank you so this time today um, is dedicated to our deepening our awareness and understanding of who we are. That's really the focus of today and of next week. To deepening our understanding of and commitment, strengthening our commitment to treat others as if they were us because they are and deepening our awareness and understanding and strengthening our relationship to that sacred mystery in which we live and move and have our being. And which seeks to find expression through how we live in the world. Further, I want everyone to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. It's so nice to hear voices when you say that now. Yeah, it's so great to see people, so energizing. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> and I see others keep coming in. That's great. I think people have gotten the message that they don't need to register. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, I mean you're, we, we request it, but I think we have a lot more people here than register. I think. They keep coming in. So, so our, our theme is um, the way of paradox and contradiction. And before we're done today, <clears throat> we're going to talk some about um, the um, path that we're going to be following um, after today. You'll hear, you'll hear more about that. There, there is a Zen saying that captures paradox and contradiction. It says, we walk the path no one has walked before, following guideposts left by others. Isn't that beautiful? So ordinary life is for ordinary people who want to find greater happiness and contentment in their lives by following a spiritual path. And I want to stress that following a spiritual path part just a smidgen. 
After 9-11, when I took the direction in my teaching to point out the dangers of fundamentalism in religious movements, I was responding specifically to the gone wrongness of a fundamentalist mindset among some misguided um, Muslims, the people who brought down the Twin Towers. At that time, <clears throat> I had no idea that a fundamentalist movement masquerading as Christian would grow to the proportion that it has in our society today. There is hardly a day that goes by that somebody <clears throat> doesn't reach out to me in one way or another to express how they have been or are being affected by Christian slash political fundamentalists. They tell me about churches where they were raised. Not unlike my own experience, the people were very wonderful, loving, generous, kind people, and they were also racist. How wrenching it is for the people that I talk to to find that they now have to move away from people that they love into a world of such different values. Or they tell me that they simply do not know how to relate to parents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, etc., who end discussions about social, political, religious issues by saying things like, Jesus is my savior and Trump is my president. Or when referring to the events of, nine, uh, of, of January 6th, they say things like, you know, you can't believe everything you see on television. Those people were probably actors. And there are a multitude of scenarios like that that I get exposed to on, uh, on a regular basis. Now, I want to be real clear, I'm not against religion, I'm not against religious practices, I'm not against religious beliefs. I think that rightly understood, they are helpful, even essential, in enhancing our growth in spiritual awareness. But, and this is a phrase that you have heard from both of us before, religion, religious practices, religious beliefs are the finger pointing toward the moon. They are not the moon. So we want to invite you today to just begin where we ended last week. Just be still. And know, open your mind, open your heart. Um, what I want for myself and what I want for you, what I want to teach, what I want you to take from here to offer to other people is that we embrace the ever-increasing capacity to live from the heart. Now, I want to repeat that, that we embrace the ever-increasing capacity to live from the heart. So what enables and empower us to take the first step from these tribal loyalties is an awareness that there's a whole world out there that we don't know and that is unknown to us. Now, imagine early on in your spiritual development that your awareness was the size of a half dollar, just a small circle. And outside that circle is all the stuff you don't know, unawareness, and it's all around. 
Now, if you were to take scissors and clip the radius of that circle, that half dollar, it would be, it would be about this long, all right? Let's suppose as you go along in this work, your awareness expands. And now it's no longer the size of a half dollar, it's the size of a basketball. Now if you were to clip that radius, it's a lot longer. So there's more of you now touching the area of what you don't know than was before. You understand? So that the more you know, the more you know that there's more to know. <laughs> because you are touching a greater sphere, of, a greater part of the unknown. The more you know, the more you know that there is a lot more to know. Now what this means is that if you're committed to walking the path of knowing, that means you can never stop. Because there's always more to know. You can never stop coming to this class. <laughs> or doing your daily spiritual or practice. Or doing your daily spiritual practice. And we can never stop teaching. This is very hopeful. This is very encouraging. There's always more to know. We're getting ready. Um, as you know, it'll be a while. We, I told somebody today we're like on a glide path, like an airplane coming in. We're getting ready to do a deep dive into the Gospel of John. And uh, I suggest that you get a good translation and read it, Eugene Peterson, and read the Gospel of John. I've never done teaching on the Gospel of John in all of my career here because I, I've just never done it. But I may be um, old enough now to do it. <laughs> and if you want to join us, we're also going to be using John Shelby Spong's book on the fourth gospel. Mm -hmm. So that's a good read, too, and um, get that. Next Sunday, we're going to do another parable, and then after that, we're going to do um, a series of, of classes on the painting of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. And if you want to get a heads up on that, you can get Henry Nowen's book on the return of the prodigal. That's a good little devotional book, by the way, to read, and I'm starting uh, rereading it again. So I want to repeat this one more time so that you will get it. Our goal in spiritual practice is to embrace the ever-increasing capacity to live from the heart. Now here's a paradox, certainly a contradiction. The doctrines, the, the, the documents that we draw information from about the teachings of Jesus are called Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. There are other Gospels that we don't have in our collection of Christian documents. There's the Gospel of Thomas, and there are others as, as, as well. The word Gospel, as you probably know, means good news. And it was what those who assembled the story sayings and acts that we call the Gospels in, in, in the Christian collection. It's what they call these documents. Why? 
I think it's because the things they were sharing was the wisdom that had changed their lives. It was news about the inclusive, transforming love that they experienced among themselves, which attracted other people into the movement. Now, the paradox or contradiction is that so much that wants, it called, wants to call itself Christianity today has become bad news. Rather than providing an alternative community, much of the movement today has joined the, the bad news of the prevailing culture where scapegoating, racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and destruction of the planet seems to be what's on the agenda. How far are we from the realm of reality that Jesus taught and created that his first followers were transformed by? Jesus and his teachings formed a movement of people who believed in his message. And it was not about something that was far off in some distant future after death, but it was a better way of living right here, right now, right in this present moment. And it, it had to be beautiful or people would not have been attracted to it. But they were attracted to it. And the transformation that they experienced that made them joyful and fearless and forgiving and generous so that that movement grew. They were, and their changed lives, could not even be stopped by persecution. Now, this spiritual work of the ever-enlarging capacity of the heart is not something that somebody can do for you. You have to do for yourself. And yet, our culture is so atomized, granulated, so focused on the individual that we have created the illusion that you can do it by yourself, and you can't. When um, I was growing up in the church that I grew up in in Columbia, Tennessee, in the South, uh, the focus was all on individual salvation. Are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus? Are you going to heaven when you die? Individual salvation hasn't gotten us very far, has it? The church of my youth and that of a multitude of others considered it a success if they could make people feel guilty and afraid and ashamed. And what Jesus was all about was getting to, to get people to change their minds about God, about who God was and how they could live together with one another. It was much more than just going to church or following some new moral code. It meant a change of mind and a change of heart. A full turning around into a, a whole new transformation of one's mentality and level of consciousness. It was like finding a treasure that was buried in a field. So these are some of the things I've noticed as we've explored mysticism and paradox. Um, one is the prevalence of the feminine voice in, in literature and writings about 
mysticism. I think many of the classic Christian mystical texts were written by women, Hildegard of Bingen, Julian of Norwich, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine. This isn't, I'm not implying that mysticism is inherently female or feminine, but I consider the circumstances, women weren't regarded as vital to public religious life. They were secondary in the presentation of religious orders. So being forced or excommunicated from traditional religious practices or roles, they turned toward a place of belonging, towards mysticism. And others, I think our man Jesus and his followers, also turned towards mysticism. They were looking for wholeness, for a way to include all. It is not gendered mysticism, but it is gender bending. Like our soul, it expresses both feminine and masculine, and neither at once. The second thing I notice is this use of metaphor, the treasure in a field, um, especially I'm really amazed by how many metaphors are used in the biblical text and in the Gospels that have to do with the natural world. This understanding of metaphor, I think, is crucial to our consciousness and our inner work. And the references to the natural world, to me, imply that we are not separate from it, that we are included in it, that we are part of it. Metaphors are supra-rational, above or beyond rationality. They're descriptive and creative, like the buried treasure in the field, and help us to imagine possibility. They're also helpful mnemonic devices. When we can remember things based on images, we have a higher likelihood of remembering them. When they're repetitive, we have a higher likelihood of remembering. And images are useful to help us remember teachings. Metaphors are interpretive, narrative, and ultimately, they're not super intellectual nor empirical. In other words, you're not going to find data that says, she done, right? Um, Let's break it down in this way. In Romeo and Juliet, everyone's read that or seen it, some version of it. Shakespeare wrote, but soft, what light, though yonder window breaks. It is the east, Juliet is the sun. Romeo speaks these lines to Juliet beneath her balcony at night, underneath the moon, comparing her surpassing beauty to the brightest star in our solar system. So this statement equates two different things, something human and something cosmic. Juliet is human, the sun is a star. How do they get to be equal? So for the purposes of illustration, this is the logical progression of a metaphor. We could say there's a human called Juliet, there is a star called the sun, This human called Juliet is radiant. The star called the sun is radiant. Therefore, the human called Juliet is like a star called the sun. So to simplify it, to make it most powerful, Shakespeare simplifies, and he was a master of language, Juliet is the sun. From one of my favorite songs, and one I just was singing in my car, goes, you're a sky, you're a sky full of stars, or you are a treasure hidden in a field. You are the field. You are also the treasure. The third thing about mysticism is that it seeks wisdom outside of doctrine. This relates to the first point, probably, as to why the feminine or females were felt, felt kinship with studying mysticism. They had to seek something to which they felt a sense of belonging. 
So our vast solar system is part of a galaxy called the Milky Way. Most of us have heard that. The Milky Way is part of a local group of other galaxies, billions and trillions of galaxies called the Virgo supercluster. The Virgo supercluster is part of an even bigger supercluster called Laniakea. This is the word I wanted to get to. There's, a, there's some beautiful Hawaiian words for things in our solar system, things in our universe. And the word Laniakea means immeasurable heaven. So we exist inside. So that red arrow is pointing to our tiny part in that supercluster. Its tendrils of other galaxies are just reaching across. And, they, and it doesn't stay the same. It's forever expanding. It's forever growing. It's forever changing. So we exist inside of an immeasurable heaven, which also exists inside of us. Indeed, we are the sun. We are the stars, the hidden treasure. The nugget for which you would trade all of your riches is immeasurable, but it's also the ground of your being. It's already the divine aspect within. I mentioned the other week that my oldest son once asked me, Mommy, what is the part of the brain that makes you, you? There is no one answer. Uh, we used to say it was the pineal gland. But I wonder if the best answer doesn't echo the ancient Hindu teaching where Brahma says, well, let's put the divinity deep inside. The humans will never find it there. <laughs> it seems so simple, but actually it's this lifelong journey inward, the treasure that is brought forth over time. I'm reminded of the Gospel of Thomas here. If you bring forth what is within, it will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within, it will destroy you. A treasure doesn't have value if no one knows it exists. We cannot find it by looking for it externally, fervent or anxious in our seeking. We will only find it by surrendering to it. I have this little book that I um, accidentally got two copies of. <laughs> it's called A Small Illustrated Guide to the Universe. And it's these little essayettes, little meditations almost, on elements of the cosmos, of the universe. And one of these is called Atoms Are Works of Art. This is the illustration for Atoms Are Works of Art. Atoms are, for the most part, unseeable as a singular thing. But they are also the basis of all matter. So when I'm looking out at us, I see all of our atoms. But I can't see the atom. Your hands, the eyes of your lover, the smile of a newborn, my puppy that we just got, this room, this building, all of it, atoms. We see how they manifest, but we don't see the atom itself with the naked eye. It is the hidden treasure. My kids are fond of saying, thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson, who they've been watching Cosmos for the last, however long, a year or so, I'm not actually touching you, our atoms are mingling. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but atoms are crucial to our understanding of the universe. And only recently have we developed these absurdly powerful microscopes that are able to see them, able to see them as individual parts. And your treasure is like that, hidden in plain sight, but unseeable and everywhere at the same time. It's waiting for us, I think, to train our inner eye upon it and let it do its work, let it bring forth what is within. There was a school of philosophical, you mentioned the word atomistic. We've gotten so kind of microscopic and 
um, separatist in some ways in our thinking. There was a school, in, school of thought in both Greek and Indian tradition called atomism. And according to this school of thought, it was um, you know, to, about the breaking down of everything into its smallest parts. So if you were to take a lump of matter, cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half into ever smaller pieces, you would eventually get to the place where you couldn't cut it in half anymore. So that they called atomos, which means indivisible. I love the analogy. I think the philosophy of atomism is, it's not the one that I follow, but it's because it's ultimately reductive and can lead to separatism, it leads to dualism. But the idea that our atomos, that which is indivisible, is our basic foundation, the basic foundation of our essential being, is a beautiful analogy to me. So our essential being is indivisible. We just think we're divided and broken and separate. In fact, when we operate out of separatism and brokenness, we do harm. When I say that you are other than me, I'm doing harm to you and myself. So we see, if we are able to see that our essential nature is already whole, already indivisible, the sum of all of our experiences, I think we're also capable of healing and hope. This to me is the greatest paradox of being human. We are capable of such harm and we are capable of such hope, such a measurable, beautiful, creative hope. Our treasure then is the true self. To reiterate, to reiterate there's nothing here for you to find, only something to become. So um, for guidance, as I said, to help us on this path of this kind of discovery, we're going to focus on three parables of Jesus. Today we're going to focus on the treasure in the field, and the next Sunday on the pearl of good price, and then the next Sunday and several Sundays we're going to focus on probably the first or second best known parable of Jesus called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, we are all here in this space today looking for something. We're hoping for something. You know, like maybe today they'll say something worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> so will you find the treasure hidden in a field today? And if you do, how will you know? What will you do with it if you find it? Now, the heart of Jesus' teaching has been translated the empire or the rule of God. Um, in the King James Version, it's translated the kingdom of God in uh, Luke and Mark. In Matthew, it's translated the kingdom of heaven, which is part of what contributed to people thinking that it's out there off somewhere after you die. When I went to seminary and graduated from seminary with a doctorate in theology, I thought I knew so much. <laughs> and it was... Uh, about three years ago, in reading the books of Daramu de Murakyu, 
Now we have all this biblical scholarship that was not available, simply not available to even scholars uh, several years ago. And the, and the scholarship that is out there is phenomenal. There's a Society of Biblical Archaeology and Biblical Studies. They publish all these learned journals and all that, and it never makes it into in here. Never. Well, a few places. And what Amirkus said is, of course, you know, I learned to read Greek when I was in the seminary and Hebrew. I couldn't do it now. One of the things that I had to do to get uh, to, to pass my orals for doctorate in theology was um, I had to be ready for one of the professors to slide a Greek New Testament across the table and open it and say, read, translate. And I could do it. I can't do it now. And I'm glad I don't have to do that. <laughs> and it, 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 it landed on me like a huge boulder to realize Jesus didn't speak Greek. <laughs> now think about that. How many sermons have I heard? How many, God forgive me, have I given where I said, this verb in Greek is in the dative case? As if that meant something. <laughs> so what Amirku says, and he's backed this up with scholarship, is very likely in the Aramaic, Jesus did not use the word empire or certainly not kingdom. What he used was the word community. The realm of God is a community-like, and he never said what it was, never said what it was. He always said it's like this. And then you had to, to figure that out. Now, when you translate from any language to another language, that's a tricky matter, but what Jesus really likely talked about was this gathering of community that included all sorts and conditions of people where two things could happen initially. The powerless could feel empowered and the powerful could help the powerless. Now, I think if we can gain in our understanding of what Jesus meant when he talked about this community of empowerment, we can begin to better understand his teachings. This seems so straightforward. But we're still scratching our heads about some of these stories he told. So Jesus taught it this way once. He never said what the community was. He just said this is what it's like. There are two parables. You're going to hear one today and one next Sunday. They're very similar, but they're also incredibly different. One is about a treasure hidden in the field, and the other is called a pearl of great price. They're back-to-back -back in a document we call Matthew. I'm going to give you two translations, the New International Version and Eugene Peterson's, and then my own. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy... He went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Here's Peterson's translation. God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field for years and then accidentally found by a 
by trespasser. The finder's ecstatic. What a find! And proceeds to sell everything he owns to raise money and buy that fuel. So we can assume that <clears throat> what Jesus was trying to convey covers all these aspects, unexpectedly finding something that makes a person so de deliriously happy that he or she is willing to throw caution to the wind and do whatever it takes to have that unexpected treasure. Now, uh, one of the reactions I have had to this story is um, <laughs> finders, losers, keepers, weepers, because that's what Jesus did all the time. He turned your expected value upside down. Now, we're used to finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Um, you may have had that happen to you, and you were in the school. I had somebody take my lunch money when I was in grammar school and say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. He was a bully. One of the, the most common uses um, of this finders, keepers, losers, weepers is in maritime law. Hmm. Um, ships went down at, at sea. After a period of time, uh, the ship's owner had no right to claim salvage rights of what anybody could do it. So you can find a wreck and mount a salvage operation. So I want to look briefly at this parable. <clears throat> we could spend months on this. The kingdom of God is like, oh, let's see, I have a slide there, like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, that was not uncommon in the time of Jesus to hide treasure in a field. They had no banks. And you remember the parable that Jesus told about this merchant who gave his, three of his servants large sums of money entrusted them with money and he went away on a long trip and two went and traded and got increase on the money and the third one did the expected thing. The other two did ridiculous things, chancy things, but the third one did what was prudent. He buried the treasure in the field. That's what you did. But Jesus turned the values upside down there too. Call that man not a good thing. About what he had done. In Jewish thought, the word treasure was a synonym for wisdom. And if you go across the street to the MFA, you'll discover exhibits of ancient Roman Egyptian coins, and they were found in caches that were buried in the ground. So in this story, the man who finds the treasure is not seeking for it. He stumbles over it. Now, of course, he's got to be able to discern that it's a treasure that he's found. Which on finding a man hid. There's no indication about what kind of man he is. He finds treasure. He immediately covers it up. No indication is given about his motivation yet. And in joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. End of story. Only at the end, it is revealed that the field isn't his. 
So the morality of his behavior is not dealt with, nor are we told what happens to him. It's in the story. Now, there is a version of this parable in the Gospel of Thomas. You've probably heard of the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> Maybe even in here for years. But in the Gospel of Thomas, the man is undone by Jewish law because he used the treasure to become a money lender which is against Jewish law. What makes a treasure a treasure is that it is something that breaks the bounds of our experience. It's not something earned. It is not something labored for. And this is way outside our culture's value system. People should not have things they don't deserve. People should not have things they don't earn. So whatever this rule of God or community of empowerment is, is something that comes to us without our earning it or deserving it. It is a matter of grace. And it is also a matter for potential corruption. You know, this, this, this discovery of what is within. I mean, again, it's like, it's hard to find the right words because discover isn't exactly it. Find isn't exactly it. It's presence to, awareness of, bringing forth. (laughs) But we talk about this idea of the true self and that being the treasure. And how do we know when we have it, have the true self or operating out of that place? One way to explain it is in the difference between fear and courage. They're not exactly opposites, more like continuations or expansions of one. So one is not courageous without first knowing fear, for example. Maya Angelou, the brilliant author, writer, poet, speaker, said that courage is the most important of all the virtues because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. I recently learned that the signs for fear and courage are remarkably similar in American Sign Language. So fear is like this, courage is like this. So drawing forth the fear. So fear goes like this, courage goes like this. Both start with an open hand, an expression of open hand. So fear kind of goes inward, courage seems to pull the fear forth. I tell my son, who's quite shy and introverted, courage is being afraid but doing it anyway. Courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid. It means that you do it anyway. It's the willingness, I think, to be vulnerable to our fear, to our humanity, to that very thing that makes us afraid to show up as ourselves, no matter how we tremble. One of my favorite authors and poets, Padre Gautuma, writes, it is as if to imply that the difference between fear and courage is whether what is in you comes to the fore or not. Courage comes from the same place as fear, and where there is fear, there is also the possibility of courage. That's the hidden treasure. When we speak from courage that comes from fear, even if our hands tremble and our voice shakes, we are speaking from our body's deepest truth. This past week, Some of you might have been following it, a story about the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is 
remarkable and the founder of the 1619 Project, a multimedia project with the New York Times. If you haven't listened to it, looked it up, read it, I highly encourage you to do it. It is a fabulous project. And she won the Pulitzer Prize for it. So her, she's been highlighted on so many news channels this week. Her work on the 1619 Project aims to reframe our country's history by placing the consequences of enslavement and the contributions of black Americans at the center of a narrative rather than on the peripheral, periphery or not at all. It is lyrical, it's narrative, it's historical, it's personal. She interviews family members, talks about her own story. And while some have called her project cynical, others call it courageous because of what it brings to the forefront. This recent controversy is not about the 1619 Project, but around the offer that she received of tenureship from her alma mater, uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She was also invited to be the night chair of investigative journalism by the faculty there. So this is the place that shaped her as a writer. And the faculty and the university unanimously supported her tenureship. And usually when that happens, the board, it's just a matter of the board signing off and saying, yeah, let's do that. They don't usually oppose what the faculty in the university has put forth. But it turns out that a wealthy donor who sits on the board wasn't so eager to approve her post, fearing that hiring a woman whose seminal work centered black Americans equaled the denigration of white Americans. This is a response that stayed in fear. It did not move through to courage. It lacks imagination for healing, for possibility. So the voice of fear prevailed in this case. It does not have to be a zero-sum game, though. In other words, in order for stories to be centered doesn't mean that others have to be neglected. Lifting up our histories of other groups that are not us does not have to equal the silencing of our own. So we move toward each other. I think stories help us move toward. And they allow us to hold space for deepening truths to emerge, for deepening relationships to emerge. So after setting aside her portfolio for tenure, the board came back and said, well, maybe you'll do a five-year trial, after which we can, you can reapply for tenure. The faculty protested, students protested, the community itself protested. She let it play out over the course of almost a year, but not without, she said, this was the most humiliating and painful year of my life. No other night chair nominee had ever been approved first, then rejected. And she was the first black woman to be recommended for this position. Hannah Jones is a decorated journalist. She hardly has much to prove. As I said, she won a Pulitzer Prize. She's been a MacArthur genius. That's, I mean, that's an incredible award. She's hardly a novice. But this back and forth went on for some time. Ultimately, it resulted in the board reversing its original decision out of pressure and saying, okay, we'll offer you this tenureship, tenureship that she rejected. And many people were scandalized by the fact that she ultimately rejected it. But many other schools queued up to hire her, to offer her tenureship. As it stands, she and one of my other favorite authors, ta Coates, will join Howard University in the fall. Lucky, lucky them. So after what she described as one of the most painful times in her life, about which she did not speak publicly until about a week ago, she issued this statement, and her full statement is online, and it's really good. I'll just read part of it. 
Many people, all with the best of intentions, have said that if I walk away from UNC, I will have let those who opposed me win. But I do not want to win someone else's game. It is not my job to heal this university, to force the reforms necessary to ensure that the board reflects the actual population of the school and of the state itself, or to ensure that the university leadership lives up to the promise it made to reckon with its legacy of racism and injustice. For too long, powerful people have expected the people they have mistreated and marginalized to sacrifice themselves to make them whole. The burden of working racial justice is laid on the very people bearing the brunt of the injustice and not the powerful people who maintain it. I say to you, I refuse. Yeah, she deserves that. <laughs> she writes here, in my opinion, from a place of courage, from that treasure deep inside. This is her voice, her true self, the voice of wisdom guiding her even if her hands shook and her voice trembled, which I doubt it did. She's, again, incredible. Her full statement is online. Go look it up. And I don't read this to embarrass, shame, or elicit that response in anyone, but to say that there is power and resonance in a voice, in your voice, in our collective voice. When we speak with courage to the things that matter most, hopefully the things that, as we were talking about, point us toward a greater, more powerful love, a more inclusive community, then we might, just might, bring together a whole lot of indivisible parts to make one whole. In this room, we are one whole, even though we're having separate experiences. I personally think we can love a place, love a country, love a church, a religion, a school, and still want it to be better. We can work within it and still want it to be better. And we can want it to be a beacon of courage that paves the way for truth, compassion, inclusion, that illuminates the treasure. I believe that the role of a community is to love people more whole, to love them into being themselves, their authentic, courageous, treasureful selves. If this were our highest value, it would inevitably result in less harm. If we loved people whole, we would, as James Baldwin wrote, create a more human dwelling place. When we unearth that treasure, we create spaces that do not prioritize one over another, but make space for all. Inclusion increases our capacity for complexity, which is necessary to expansion and evolution. This is both on a cosmic level and on a personal one. I should have asked you to bring one of your kaleidoscopes. You have, these are my little dinky. <laughs> Bill has a wonderful collection of kaleidoscopes. My dad did too. Really? Yeah, we used to give him kaleidoscopes for most gifts. But kaleidoscopes are kind of like that. Life is not one-dimensional. It's never viewed through a single lens. We can't do it that way or we will lose depth. We will not gain access to complexity. When you see this, you don't look at this and know what's on the inside. It's pretty ordinary. It's paper. It's got animals on it. But when you look within, it is ever-changing. It is a myriad of shapes, colors, a, a, a complex layer of gems, of treasures. So at every turn, it gives us a different view. 
the essence remains constant, but the view continually changes. And if we allow it to, it grows our perspective. So um, I will give you an example of a treasure hidden in the field. Mm -hmm. That piece that she wrote. Your microphone's off. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of a treasure here hidden in the field, that piece that she wrote. Mm -hmm. Either, did you send that to me? I did. Okay. Um, because when I read it, I went, wow. That's her treasure. It's a treasure. Mm -hmm. So about kaleidoscopes. <laughs> Some have fixed rings on the outside that you can turn, and those you can eventually get the same pattern back if you turn them accurately enough. enough. But those that are filled with broken pieces of glass, things like that, infinite, infinite, the possibilities. And I like kaleidoscopes because they are broken pieces of glass, which when put through the perspective of a, of a series of mirrors become these beautiful images like that. Mm. So um, next week we're going to deal with a parable that sounds very much like the one today, but it's very different. And it is um, the pearl, the parable of the pearl of great price. And you know, when you were growing up in church, maybe you didn't have this experience, but I did with these experiences. Are you saved? You know, that experience. Have you found Jesus? Well, what we're going to call next Sunday is, has Jesus found you? <laughs> Bill's the title maker here. And it has a subtitle. What are the clues and evidence? <laughs> Serious question. So where are we going to begin next Sunday? What are, the, what are the clues? What's the evidence? How can somebody tell by watching you, talking to you, that you're on the spiritual path? What would be some of the marks? I remember you once saying that some of the most spiritual people you know appear as if they are atheists. Some of the most religious people you know. Mm -hmm. Because some, we don't, the mystery and mysticism is that we don't always know the where. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. it's just well, I've got several, several marks in line. And the first one is that they, they, they love puns. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what direction this is going in right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep going. What's the, on the rest of that? <laughs> I'm not going to give you any more today. <laughs> Western religion, uh, and I know the Ordinary Life Book Group is going to understand, uh, undertake the reading of, of the book on the almost infallible history of Christianity. It's a big, thick book written by this British guy. It's very funny. It's very informative. It's very, very funny, too. And it talks about how almost from the beginning, the Jesus movement has had to fight religion. Mm. <laughs> it's true. And especially now, in this culture in which we live, where uh, religion and politics have so gotten in bed with each other, um, it is leading people to think that religion is mostly about holding on to correct thinking. 
holding what they call the fundamentals of faith in a tightly closed fist, that is not a sign of a strong faith. Such religion has exchanged the fire of the spirit for the ice of religious pride. And it has accomplished a miracle. It turned wine back into water. That's become stagnant. Look at what's going on in the United Methodist Church today. A petty, judgmental argument that is more self-seeking than welcoming. So we're going to send you out today with an assignment to be open to stumbling across a treasure hidden. And you come back and report next week what you find. When you do, how will you know what you have found? And what lasting difference will it make in your life? One guideline is to keep in mind that our goal in spiritual practice is to embrace the ever-increasing capacity to live from the heart with courage. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll hear your report next week. <laughs>